Hello, and welcome to episode 89 of the Movie Brats podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? Relieved, because I just, within the last 12 hours, submitted final grades, and that means I'm all done with the semester. Well, there you go. We've got a ton of good movies out in theaters right now, Um, so a lot to be excited for with a little more time on your hands. And uh, today we are going to be talking about three movies by some auteur directors directing scripts that they did not write. Um, so a little bit of a theme for this episode. The first one we will be discussing is The Killer, directed by David Fincher, who previously directed Seven, Fight Club, and The Social Network, starring Michael Fassbender, uh, Tilda Swinton, and a whole other recognizable faces in supporting roles. Um, it is about an international assassin who goes on a vendetta after a job goes wrong. It premiered originally September 3rd at the Venice Film Festival and was released on Netflix on November 10th. It has a Metacritic score of 73 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 85. Um, so Fincher has, has been in a little partnership with Netflix for a while now. Um, he started off directing their first TV show, right? House of Cards. Um, well, if we're being, uh, (laughs) technical, it's the first one that was produced Uh, completely for Netflix. There's Lily Hammer, which was bought by Netflix and released first, but yes, it was the first original. They were Um, sending Lily Hammer out on DVDs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, uh, I want to just note that of these three directors we're talking about, Fincher's never actually, uh, been credited as a screenwriter on any of his, whereas the other two, uh, frequently, they're, they are screenwriters in their films, uh, just to be nitpicky. But yes, it's true. His father wrote his previous film that was on Netflix, Mank. Mank. Yes. And um, uh, one thing I want to point about these two films, the two that are Netflix films, I missed their previous film in the theater because it came out during the pandemic. And so I made the trek to Atlanta to see both of these because I wanted to continue seeing these directors films in the theater and they came out so yes the killer was one i went to atlanta to see did you see it in the theater or on netflix no so from the very jump a difference in our our viewing experiences i watched it on netflix it was only playing in in one theater um which was about 45 minutes away from where i was um and it was only playing there for one week which so maybe not the best job of Netflix of getting this movie out in a wide array of theaters. Um, yeah. I uh, saw Sean Baker on Instagram saying like, you have the director of seven fight club gone girl. And it stars Michael Fassbender. It's a, you know, thriller. It's a hitman movie mm-hmm. and you barely release it in theaters. Like what's yeah. going on with film distribution these days. <laughs> yeah, it's it like- great. And it's not like Netflix doesn't, allow films to show in theaters like maestro which just came out the weekend we're recording is not playing near you but it's playing in a whole bunch of theaters near me well Um, it's still except for the rare exceptions of the knives out sequel and white noise randomly virtually no netflix film will play in any regal cinemark or amc theaters in the whole united states mm -hmm. so um 
yeah, I mean, independent theaters will play them, but yeah, I mean, it's just uh, they're still at a stalemate. Netflix well, and well, let's change. get let's get past the distribution, and we can we can get to our reactions. I think um, the sort of noise around this uh, before I saw it was that it's sort of nice but lesser Fincher, and I think that's sort of what your opinion of it was. Correct? Yes, it's a very well directed, stylish entertaining to a point uh thriller but it reminded me when there was in the news that there was discussion that he was going to direct a world war z sequel he's worked with brad pitt numerous times and i go back and forth with this it's like if you're going to do a comic book film a franchise movie a sequel like world war z like hire someone like david fincher or darren aronofsky or edgar wright or guillermo del toro and Give them a big sack of money and go away and let them hand in a really interesting genre movie. And then I also think David Fincher is like 60 in his early 60s now. Mm-hmm. I don't want David Fincher, who's done like some amazing Less than films. 10 movies, too. Yeah. The Social Network is like one of the great films of the last 15 years. And I think that it's like, do I want him doing? A zombie sequel do i want him doing the killer it's like yes and no it's like the like i don't have a problem at all like i love that steven soderbergh will do these you know nifty you know slick genre movies uh but also i feel like you're better than this and the killer like i don't fundamentally have a problem with him doing a kind of b movie uh thriller but it should be better than this if he's gonna do that like i thought gone girl was was really good mm-hmm. really compelling and that's the one i think of his better films certainly one of his better kind of genre movies and i felt like this one was one of his lesser movies it's not as bad as like alien three or you know but it's kind of like in the realm of panic room like really expertly made but kind of like eh, it just feels like he's spinning his wheels masterfully but you know so what yeah, I mean, I enjoyed this movie. I thought it did interesting things with voiceover narration and had some, you know, interesting fight scenes and um, and stuff like that. But it definitely doesn't reach the heights of a Zodiac or Social Network. And I guess you could say that maybe nothing he's made since the social, the social Network has sort of approached the heights of those two. Um, like you said, he's sort of gone into more genre movies. I guess Mank would be the obvious difference in that because Mank doesn't really fit into any sort of genre you could think about but I think for a lot of people they consider that to be a bit of a failure I'm a big fan of Mank so I don't see it that way but I saw a lot of people reading into the killer um <laughs> the sort of you know what you do after a botched job as Fincher relating to to that character and sort of seeing Mank as a botched job um but you can definitely see what attracted him to this story like um, he's very interested in showing very precise and sort of expert people doing their very precise and expert things. And um, you definitely could understand how Fincher would identify with the main character who's this assassin who's very concerned with process and everything has to be very meticulous and, and perfect and stuff like that. Um, so I could see what attracted him to the story and you can see what he's going for. He's trying to make a movie sort of like Le Samurai um, from the 1960s, the Jean-Pierre Melville movie um but which he has cited by title in interviews yeah 
So it's a very obvious homage. And um, it does interesting things with soundtrack, uh, with sort of playing with diegetic and non-diegetic song uh, soundtrack, mostly using the Smith songs, which as a Smiths fan, I was very happy to hear like 15 of their songs in this movie. Um, but yeah, ultimately pretty entertaining, but um, definitely not reaching the heights of uh, the other two that we'll be talking about today and definitely not reaching the heights of his previous movies. So like you said, I'm glad that that good directors make genre movies and make interesting genre movies. But I with his sort of career, you know, he's 61 years old. He doesn't seem to be making a whole bunch of movies. Um, I would like to see another real sort of late career masterpiece from David Fincher. You know, maybe we'll get one, but um and 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 it could be a World War Z sequel. It could be like <laughs> yeah. one of the best zombie movies. Uh, but the you understand my kind of paradox of like I want them to do good franchise movies, but I don't want them to do like genre <laughs> kind of something. It, it's it's like if you do it as well as you know, like I think Gone Girl is actually like in the like I don't know. He's done about ten films. Like it's in the top five. The top for half, me, yeah. Like it's one of his better movies for me. I mean, I do you agree that Zodiac's his best film? It's between Zodiac and The Social Network. I think those stand. Yeah, those two are just so great. I mean, and when you consider he was really famous for for Seven and Fight Club before um, Zodiac came out, and I think just how much those have been eclipsed by by Zodiac and The Social Network. Um, like every year that goes by, Zodiac seems to be thought of in higher and higher regard. Um, so. Well, it, it it was one of those many great films from arguably the best year of the century so far, 2007, which was No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood and Eastern Promises and Sweeney Todd and Knocked Up. And, mm. you know, there's so many Michael Clayton. And I think that it got like good reviews when it came out, but there were just so many good movies that year. Like, I don't think it even got nominated uh, for any. I mean, it may be some technical Oscars, but it certainly wasn't nominated for like best director. Uh, he's been nominated for best director three times, um, uh, including Mank, which, you know, people say was a failure. But yeah, Zodiac, no Oscar nominations, not any. Uh, I don't expect the killer to be getting any either. <laughs> no, um, um, I think that. Uh, yeah. And um, I, another thing about the movie, in a weird way, it's kind of like uh, just over a year ago, this film was ranked the greatest film of all time by the sight and sound poll, uh, Jean Dielman. It's like, what if you did uh, Jean Dielman, like a very matter of fact, watching the day in and day out of an assassin mm -hmm. um, instead of a woman doing house chores over three days. But um, the problem I have with it, it's like, I almost wish the movie had been more clinical and like more art house and been like, you're really sitting and watching him like, you know, sip coffee and not move for five straight minutes and uh -huh. made it like really like kind of almost experimental or they should have like just been a little more fun genre B movie, like kind of lean into it more. I think there's some movies that uh, kind of are in this unsatisfying middle ground where it's like trying to be a little bit arty and philosophical but it's trying to be a b-movie and it doesn't really work satisfactorily in either camp like it's kind of trying to be both mm -hmm. like i felt that way too a little bit about 1917 where i felt like it's kind of this pretentious war film that i, I liked overall but 
it, it's also kind of being this like Brian De Palma gimmick movie. Mm -hmm. And I wish that like the killer had either been like kind of really stripped down, like almost like Jean Dielman as an assassin movie or had been a little bit more pulpy and like just kind of admitted Fun. it was. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's nice seeing Tilda Swinton show up. Do you remember this isn't the first time they've worked together? Do you remember what when they curious case of Benjamin Button? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which um, I always but, like to remind people has the greatest uh, fake porn title on 30 Rock. Uh, Tracy Morgan's character <laughs> says, The Curious Case of Benjamin Butt. I thought uh, that was one of the great fake porn titles. I think, continue. I think that maybe the platform that financed this movie and it was released on um, Netflix did not necessarily serve the movie. I think you can sort of tell that Fincher would like to be doing what you described where it's like maybe even a little bit slower than what this ended up as. And I couldn't help watching in the sort of opening sequence, which is about like 20 minutes and it's kind of insane rush title sequence that we get at the very beginning. That feels like it was studio noted by Netflix. Like, Hey, let's wrap this thing up as quickly as possible where you can like well, barely even see the names on the screen. The the opening credits uh, for his girl with the dragon tattoo are very similar, but that one's a really cool opening credits. And this one just feels like, uh it's almost like there's this whole like hbo true blood like there's this like there's all these like prestige tv dramas that have uh the same kind of opening title graphics mm -hmm. and it feels like i mean i don't really think that the film feels like a tv series uh i mean it's quite cinematic but uh the opening credits just seem like kind of a like a like a netflix series it was jarring it was like actually pretty jarring for me and it, it put me on the back foot for the first 15 minutes or so where we're getting this sort of constant voiceover narration and i don't know i maybe he'd wanted it to be like jarring and um sort of put you on your back foot but i would have appreciated if if it had been a little slower and maybe that sequence had taken 10 minutes longer like you said and we got to see a bit more of just him in silence or him watching um, so it, it sort of seemed like it was at cross purposes where it wanted to be this Le Samurai, Jean Dielman type, very slow moving thing, but that that wouldn't suit a Netflix movie. And so they sort of had to rush through what I think should have been allowed to breathe a bit more at the beginning. So it was a, it's a really interesting opening where you're getting all this voiceover narration. You don't hear another person speak for a long, long time. And sort of what it comes down to is everything he's telling you is not exactly what he does and a lot of times it, what he does or what happens is the opposite of what he's saying so it plays with voiceover narration in an interesting way and i think this was the first michael fassbender starring role i'd seen in a while it seemed like he had taken a little break i was um, just about to mention he's in also uh this year next goal, next goal wins, wins but yes the last film he was in at all was four years ago dark phoenix but then the last film before that was uh the snowman which was a really which botched a, movie yeah. uh it was, hey, amazing <laughs> it's like the guy who directed let the right one in and tinker taylor and was produced by scorsese and then it was like i heard they didn't even like actually finish shooting the movie really yeah it's i've haven't seen the whole thing but i've seen clips of it and it looks like hate it's like the worst edited movie i've ever seen like it's right hard to um, believe. <laughs> i think part of it that uh he's you know who he's uh married to alicia vikander right yes and they have a child so i think he might have taken i mean also like the pandemic there's that yeah, too true. But, uh but yeah i also wanted to mention one movie it reminded me of besides la samurai uh you ever see uh point blank with lee marvin yes 
Yes. It reminded me of that. And I love that movie. And uh, that's got it, a bit of a, like a hallucinogenic quality that this one doesn't have. Yeah. But there's also kind of a sparseness to point blank. It's just like, I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to mm-hmm. get my money. Like, it's just like, there's just this kind of Spartan, there's this sparse quality to it. And I don't know, the killer just felt a little bit, I don't know. I enjoyed it. I did, yeah. but it's like three and a half out of five. And like uh, for yeah. a new David Fincher movie, that's kind of disappointing. Yes. That's basically where I stand on it. If if someone who wasn't David Fincher had made this, I'd have been like, wow, like what a great movie by this director. But because it's Fincher, you have such high standards. Um, it was a disappointment because I was really looking forward to this for a long time. And um, yeah, it's one of those things where expectations maybe don't serve the movie as well as, you know, if we had been judging this, like it was just somebody and it was just a movie that came out on Netflix. I probably wouldn't watch it if it wasn't a David Fincher movie that just came out on Netflix. But um, yeah, I think three and a half out of five is is generally where I would end up on this. Um, and not really a, that much of a noteworthy performance from Fazbender, to be honest. He's kind of, I know he's supposed to sort of be, be like a blank slate and um, not really present too much to the audience besides the voiceover narration, which we can choose to believe or not believe. But um yeah, it's interesting kind of movie. Well, I don't think it's like well, I was going to say it's like Ryan Gosling and Drive has that blank slate quality, but that's a lot more of a compelling performance, I think. Yes, I, I agree completely. Um, so we will move on to a pretty different movie. Uh, it is The Holdovers, directed by Alexander Payne, who previously directed movies uh, like About Schmidt and Sideways. And more recently, I think his last one was Downsizing. Is that right? Um, yes, which was a kind of a departure. It's a comedy, but it was a much bigger budget, kind of a science fiction, high concept film, which I liked pretty well. But it was, you know, his certainly his most mixed film that got the most mixed reviews and was a big failure at the box office. Yes. Um, so this one is starring Paul Giamatti, who he directed in Sideways nearly 20 years ago. Uh, Divine Joy Randolph and Dominic Sessa in his film debut. It is set in the winter of 1970, where a curmudgeonly classics teacher at a New England boarding school is forced to chaperone the students who have nowhere to go for Christmas break. It originally premiered August 31st at Telluride and was released wide in the U.S. on October 27th. It has a Metacritic score of 81 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 96. Um I saw somewhere before I saw this that people were referring to this as a cozy movie and Alexander Payne was actually like insulted by that insinuation. Um, And watching it, I definitely was like, this is not a cozy movie. It's actually pretty dark and and goes to very serious places about loneliness and all kinds of stuff and guilt and um, shame and embarrassment. Uh, but overall, I thought this was an incredible movie. Uh, Paul Giamatti is getting he's never been nominated for an Oscar, right? Um, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Cinderella Man. OK, that's that's the only one. So never for Best Actor, I guess, is the no. thing. Um, and he's, he's getting a whole. Great, he's one of those great character actors that is often in supporting roles in movies. Yes. And he's he's unbelievably good in the holdovers. It seems like him and Alexander Payne are very much from the same wavelength and the sort of character that they're trying to get across. And the two, I guess it's sort of a two-hander. Would you say Dominic Sessa is, is sort of a co-lead? It's kind of a three-hander. With Divine, Divine Joy Randolph? Well, I mean, they would get nominated in supporting category, but it's really kind of a three-hander. It's the three yeah. of them throughout the movie. 
Yes, and they're both excellent. Um, so this is one of the best acted movies of the year. Um, it really effectively captures the period with 1970 New England and sort of the bleakness uh, of it. Um, but I okay. really, really like this. We should point out it's a comedy. Though. It is. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. It's a comedy drama, and there's certainly some darkness and heaviness. But you make it sound like a chore, and I, you know, it's I not. It's not. It's not. <laughs> no. Yeah, Alexander Payne, you know, is a really intelligent director, big, big cinephile, and I've heard a number of interviews, and he can not be argumentative, but someone will pose a question. And he'll be like, I don't know if I agree with that. And what do you mean by that? And like, he, he just like, he actually wants a real conversation with people. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I think that part of the, he's talked about the coziness. It's like, part of it's just that a lot of the people are in coats and it's snowing and there's <laughs> yeah. like literal, you know, coziness. But uh, one thing I admire about this movie uh, and he's talked about it, not only does it, not is it, not only is it actually set, in, 19, in the early 1970s, it feels like it came out in the 1970s. Yeah. He said that his idea with making the movie was that he didn't want to make a period piece. He said he wanted to make a film as if he were making it in 1971 and it was a contemporary film. So a bit like Mank. <laughs> yeah, but Mank, I, I, I don't want to ramble on about Mank, but Mank <laughs> bothered me so much where it just was messing with... With the sound and everything? Like, why is it in widescreen, but he shoots it digitally... And why is there the cigarette burns if it's shot digitally? Like that bothered me a lot. Yeah. Uh, where the holdovers, uh, even though it's shot digitally, I'm almost certain it really feels, uh, and not in a gimmicky like grindhouse mank way where it's like, oh, look at us. It just very, it feels very. Oh, it feels like it's like a Hal Ashby movie. Like, yeah. The, the only thing, deal. yeah. The only thing that's uh, kind of gimmicky about it is like the opening titles. Uh, like the studio logo looks like it's from the 70s but yeah yeah, i very much thought of the last detail there was a alamo draft house video that Payne did where he was picking some movies that i don't even think they necessarily all had something to do with this new movie of his but just ones that he wanted to have screened in theaters because he got to pick a handful and Mm -hmm. one of them though he said was the last detail and both of those films are that movie came out right around the time the film is set. And it's about people that are kind of hanging out in the cold uh, time of the year. And the uh, they're kind of, and they're chaperoning someone, by the way, I have to bring up random something for every movie. Uh, the only person to ever be nominated for an Oscar and then become a Saturday Night Live cast member, crazy Randy Quaid nominated for supporting actor for the last detail, then became a Saturday Night Live cast member. Oscar trivia. An interesting bit of trivia there. (laughs) Yes. Uh, He's like a total like nut job these days. Uh, But anyway. uh, It was in great movies in the 70s. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I forgot he was like all these Bogdanovich films. He's in Last Picture Show. He's in What's Up, Doc. Midnight Express. Yeah. Um, And and he's in Brokeback Mountain, too. It's like you forget sometimes people are in. Yeah. Yeah. But the uh, holdovers. I know, but the holdovers is um, it's Alexander Payne is such a good director and I'm a big, big fan of his that this isn't like even one of my three favorite of his, but I really, really liked it. Like, Mm -hmm. I love Election. I love Nebraska. Bout Schmidt is one of like Nicholson's absolute best, certainly one of his later career performances. Like that is like such a good movie. And um it's like I don't have anything bad to say about the whole say about the holdovers. It's just that there's other movies of his that I like even more. 
And mm-hmm. like, I don't even know that the holdovers would make my top 10, but it's like, it's like a movie that I, I just really, really like, but I don't, I don't think I love it quite as much as some people, but I like don't really have anything bad to say about it. I really liked it. It's so well written. It's so well directed, so well acted. And it's just a, a lovely, funny, uh, moving movie. Uh, yes. So Alexander Payne, David Fincher, within a year of each other, they're about the same age. They've both made a similar number of movies, I guess you'd say, sort of around made 10. Even- well, hasn't Fincher gotten up to about uh, 11 or 12 now? I think yes. Payne's only directed about eight or so. Yes. Okay. So even less. But um, I guess do you yeah, think sort of at, kind of the, at the end of their careers, this will be sort of higher in the, the Payne rankings than the killer will be for Fincher? Oh, yeah. It's like, I mean, there's certain directors where, like, you look at their careers and it's like, you know, most like most of Tarantino's movies are great. Mm-hmm. Most of Payne's movies are great. Fincher, it's more like uh, hit or miss. Yeah, not as uh, much as you'd expect, considering sort of the way he started. Yeah, I mean, there's one like I actually really quite like his version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I actually like it better than the Swedish film, which is same. Yeah. but uh, <laughs> it's it's still like uh, yeah, the Alexander Payne his films have been I've seen all of them: Citizen Ruth, Election, About Schmidt, Sideways. The Descendants, Nebraska, Downsizing, The Holdovers. So he's yeah. had eight. And uh, yeah. Written I mean, all it, but two. So yeah, the last two he did not write. Uh-huh. Uh, no, no, he wrote, uh, he, he didn't, uh, he wrote Nebraska and The Holdovers that he hasn't written. Yes. That he didn't uh, write. Yes. And then with David Fincher, uh, his filmography, we're just <laughs> pulling up IMDb. Um, but uh, he directed... Alien 3, Alien 3, which was Alien 7, yeah. The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, Mank, and The Killer. So he's had 12. Yeah. Still not um, a lot. I mean, when you compare it to someone like Ridley Scott or something like that. Yeah. And it's interesting that um, the... Uh, and they've been making films right about the same amount of time, and they're right around the same age. Yeah, so uh, definitely contemporaries. But yeah, uh, but yeah, I um, no, I I I think I could see the holdovers being nominated. Like I can't imagine it won't get nominated for best picture, best screenplay. Screenplay least, is a lock. Yeah, I think uh, very likely best actor. I think uh, I think best supporting actress is very likely. I'd be surprised she's not nominated. I think this is going to be like the most intense best supporting actor race in like living memory. Uh, It's uh, every time I I sort of like think about who's going to win. I'm like, oh, my God, like because now Ruffalo is starting to win awards and stuff like that for poor things, which I'm very excited about. And there's a weird Oscar thing where it's like the last like five years in a row. There have been two people nominated from one film and best supporting actor. There was Pacino and Pesci for the Irishman. There was last year, um, it was uh the two from Banshees of Inisherin. And mm-hmm. I can't remember, but there's been like I think this will be like the fifth year in a row. And they're saying that both Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe could get nominated for poor things. Like they're both in the conversation. But then um, it's like who else is gonna make it? Well, it's like Robert Downey Jr. and Ryan Gosling, I think, are almost certainly locks. locks. Yeah. 
Uh, Mark Ruffalo seems very likely. I think Dominic Sessa, wonderful. That's sort of what I'm thinking about, because in any normal year, I would think like surely he is a lock for best and actor. not to jump the gun, but Charles Melton is he's won a few awards, too, yeah. for May, December, the next film we're going to yeah. talk about. Um, of course, there's one set. And then also, like, I could see, a, you know how, like, often in the supporting categories, there's like ones that like aren't getting nominated. And then the Oscar, like Tom Hardy gets nominated for the Revenant, like all yeah. of a sudden, or Maggie Gyllenhaal gets nominated for crazy heart. I th- I could see Matt Damon getting nominated for Oppenheimer also. Yeah. yeah. I think it's been a little strange how basically Downey's been the only Oppenheimer person put forward in that category. When I could think of like five people, Josh Hartnett, um, who's the one who plays the other scientists, um, the chubby Safety's one. Glasses. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> Krumholtz or something like that. Yeah, David Krumholtz right. is incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, th- I would like to see this. Is I don't know. It's an outstanding year for supporting performances. Hey, did um, you just see? This is crazy. This is not anything. But we're talking about Oppenheimer. Did you see that they released like a bunch of Oscar shortlist and Oppenheimer did was snubbed for best visual effects. Yeah, like that's insane. It's <laughs> crazy. Like that's like. <laughs> Like, yeah, I mean, what's what's going on there? Yeah, it's but, uh, like one of the best visual effects movies I've ever seen. Like the the dropping of the bomb is genuinely terrifying in that. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it, because so much of it was non-computer digital based and so much of it was practical, they didn't maybe consider it visual effects or something. It's just. But that makes it like even more, more impressive. impressive than, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's but, really uh, weird. I, there is some digital effects in the holdovers, which you wouldn't think. Uh, they added some snow. Like people don't realize, like it doesn't have to be Godzilla, which I just yeah. saw last night, or you know, um, the creator. But yeah, but it's like there's like I mean, like the second story level of in the house and Parasite was not there. That was all. Yeah computer effect like people don't really like it doesn't have to be some creature some giant intergalactic battle you know it can be like it's one of those things where maybe sometimes it's so seamless that people don't even realize it's there and and that's the best use of cgi that's the best use of it um but yeah the i don't know how in the discussion the holdovers are talking about cgi uh (laughs) and godzilla but well uh, how did they do his lazy eye jonathan i have no idea I, well, the, the, I mean, go back to Lon Chaney Sr. I mean, you could just put in. I know. Which right? <laughs> was very uh, convincing in this movie, though. Giamatti, like, fully embodies this performance as this sort of miserable, pitiful, uh, draconian classic teacher. The, the teacher no one wants to have. Um, so it's it's very touching to see this sort of relationship between him and this high school student develop. Um, the, the high school student's. Out? He gets the best grade in his class with a B plus. So you've been yes. grading recently, so you can relate to that. I know. I was going to say I actually uh, was going on a plane once, and I was walking back to my seat and coach, and Paul Giamatti was sitting in first class, and I just was kind of slowly getting back to my seat in the line, and I just looked at him and I said, "I don't mean to bother you, but I love you. I love <laughs> you." And he went, "Oh, thank you." And that's all I said. It was just a nice little moment. He's he's one of the great character actors and the type that like people always go oh where are the you know the harry dean stanton's and the amendment walsh's of i mean there's you know amendment walsh is still alive but there's like there used to be this just incredible you know pool of character actors and i'm not saying arthur kennedy yeah yeah i mean like he's just he's one of those that can give a really good 
lead performance. I mean, he's in American Splendor. He's in a movie I really like called Barney's Version. Of course, mm-hmm. Sideways was one of his lead performances. But yeah, he's so good in this movie because he, he can do the comedy. He can, you know, throw out a good line, but he also can be emotional and have so much uh, set on his face and in the quiet moments. So it's like, I'd be very happy to see him get nominated. I'd like to see all three of them get nominated. Well, Divine Joy Randolph seems like she's actually the favorite maybe to win supporting actress at this point. Um, And she's incredible as as the sort of head chef at the restaurant or sorry the, i'm thinking of like the bear or something at the oh, boarding school that, you know what movie he was going to direct for a minute and it like was really close to doing was the menu oh really so, the freudian slip yeah there you go know. okay yeah <laughs> um but she's incredible as a sort of grieving mother um in a lot of ways the sort of heartbeat of the movie if you want to use a cliche um but Alexander I Payne would take issue with you saying that, just like Cozy, probably. Exactly. <laughs> You're like, don't use cliches to describe my movie. How um, dare you praise my movie with lovely words? I hadn't really seen her in a lot, to be honest. I'm I'm looking at her. One thing that now. I really one thing I really missed that I, I want to catch up with. I've heard she's in Payne said what she knew her from on screen was Dolomite is my name. The one with mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy playing Rudy Ray Moore, which I've heard is great. And I really need to catch up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's and then, a theater look, actress. I think a lot of people know her from theater, too. But Yes. So it's. I mean, her and Dominic says, I mean, she's been a working actor for a long time. Dominic and, says uh, it's his first. And movie, even though. Yeah, even though this film is, like I said, a comedy drama, like she's best known. I think a lot of her screen For roles comedy. have been like more kind of broad comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just looking at at Paul Giamatti's sort of filmography, he's been working a lot, but nothing that really stood out for me for for some time. Maybe. Well, since, like, you know why? Why is that? Because he's been on a cable television show for like seven seasons. Oh, billions. yes. Billions. Yes. Yeah, I don't even like it's just a world that goes on outside of my purview. <laughs> I know what happens is sometimes you'll be like, boy, I haven't seen that actor actress in a movie in like six, seven or eight years. It's like and then they've been doing like a massive television 100 episodes that, of television. <laughs> I know. Like, I think he's in every episode of Billions and it ran like seven or eight seasons on Showtime. So, yeah, yes, so that's right. So for me, as someone who doesn't watch prestige television <laughs> if you could call billions prestige television it was sort of like seeing him for the first time in a long time and because he'd been in supporting roles and like love and mercy and straight out of compton um, yeah two music biopics and yeah. then he like shows up in weird stuff like isn't he in like one of the rock movies like san andreas he was in jungle the... cruise yeah you gotta make year. the money <laughs> exactly yeah. so yeah um you know, so, it's the first movie a lot of people saw him in, I think. Uh, besides uh, Saving Private Ryan? Uh, he was uh, Pig Vomit in the Howard Stern film Private Parts, 1997, the year before. Uh, Saving do you Private think a Ryan. lot of people saw that? <laughs> he also was the control room director in The Truman Show. I mean, he's yes. one of those actors. You go back and look. He's in some Woody Allen movies, Mighty Aphrodite and Deconstructing Harry. He's in my big, my best friend's wedding. He's in, uh, you know. He's he's one of those people who just kind of looks like a normal guy. I don't want to like, you know, image yeah. shame him and call him ugly. <laughs> but no. I mean, that's sort of part of what his character is in this movie is that he's not right. 
like a classic movie star or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, he has such an eclectic career. It's like he's in Man on the Moon playing Bob Zamuda, and then he's in Big Mama's House, and then he's yeah. in the remake of Planet of the Apes, and uh, he's in John Woo's film Paycheck as a voice in Robots. Yeah, so he it was the one of the lead performances he had early on was in Lady in the Water by M. Not yes. Shame about the last film. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think we both think he would be very well deserving of winning Best Actor. Um, I don't think well, a serious or sorry nominated nominated, nominated yes yeah. I was a 40 I think I was about Killian to say Murphy, yeah. yeah I think Killian Murphy's sort of been the front runner but it might be one of those things where if you're a front runner for eight nine months maybe that's not the best thing um, but we'll see uh, we've had a lot of national board of review and AFI coming out with their sort of awards recently um and i Can think i Oscar- complain about something sure we have a few minutes before we need to take a break <laughs> yes um i think there are critics that do top 10 lists before they've seen all the movies that come out and then i mean of course oh, there's no way someone can watch but like i'm not saying that migration the the animated movie about birds that's coming out on christmas like is gonna like crack a bunch of top 10 lists but like you know it's like a major family release like, I don't think anyone's seen it yet. Like, you shouldn't make a top 10 list. I'm not, like I said, there's no way you could watch even a fraction of all the movies that actually get released. I mean, you look on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes, it's like, you know, 12, Hundreds. 15 plus movies come out every week, every yeah. Friday, yeah. you know, and there's like the, some, like over half them get released in like literally like two theaters in the United States for one week, like one in New York and one in LA, and that's it. But, yeah. But it's still like, you know, and like the color purple has been screened. I mean, there's no reviews yet, but like, I don't know that everyone has seen the color purple. Yeah. And like, and regardless of like how good that movie is or not, it's like, but it's like a big possibility. Yeah. It's, a, you know? yeah, yeah, it's one of the sort of tentpole releases of December, which is yeah. usually Christmas is a big release date. Um, in living in Podong, South Carolina, I always like made my top 10 list like in mid-March when finally some movie <laughs> I was dying to see finally got released. But uh, one thing we'll do differently this year is I want us to do our top 10 most anticipated of next year. A little earlier. Like, yeah, because the last <laughs> two years there have been movies that I'd already seen by the time we made the list yeah. that like surprisingly got released in January. But one thing that's different I want to add about the two Netflix films we're going to talk about May, December next is the holdovers is doing it really old school as it's release. You, it was released in some theaters and then more theaters and it's spread out and it's trying to like be old school. Like, Hey, it's had good word this. of mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how can you not like this movie? You know? Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, it's, I know letterbox sort of puts out their like top 10 trending movies every week. And I was really surprised to see how high the holdovers was a lot of weeks in the month of November. Um, but yeah, so we've done two sort of auteur releases from the last the something, months. the something. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we have got another one from Todd Haynes coming up after the break. So we will be back in just a second. All right. I'll And we are back from our very brief break to discuss our third movie of the episode. It is May, December, directed by Todd Haynes, who has previously directed Far From Heaven and Carol, along with many other notable movies. Uh, This one stars Natalie Portman, 
uh, Julianne Moore, who I think this is her fifth or sixth collaboration with Todd Haynes, and Charles Melton, who has been getting a lot of buzz in the awards circuit. Uh, the movie is about, or it stars Natalie Portman as an actress who travels to Savannah, Georgia, to meet with a woman who she's going to portray in an upcoming movie about the woman's uh, illicit relationship with a teenager that led to a pregnancy, and now the couple have been married uh, for quite some time and have children going off to college. Uh, it originally premiered May 20th at the Cannes Film Festival, was released in the U.S. on November 17th, and was released on Netflix December 1st, a Metacritic score of 85 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 92. I think that you are probably a bit more Todd Haynes literate than I am, Jonathan. Um, I've probably only seen three or four of his movies, so I will let you have the first uh, reaction to May, December. Yep, let the gay talk about Todd Haynes, <laughs> yes. Um, I've seen all of his feature theatrical narrative films, so I've not seen all of his shorts. I've not seen Mildred Pierce's miniseries, mm-hmm. and I the one I mentioned that I didn't see David Fincher's last film, Mank, in the theater when it came out because of the pandemic. And I regret I still have not seen the Velvet Underground documentary. Oh, it's brilliant. It's amazing. I've heard is very good. Um, so I've seen all of his feature theatrical narrative films, and I'm a big fan of his. And this film is kind of going back in a way to a little bit closer to some of his previous films, uh, like Wonderstruck, uh, was a PG rated, you know, in a way, family movie. And then Dark Waters, which I thought was underrated. I really liked Dark Waters. It was like this legal Alan thriller. J- yeah, it was just like Alan J. Pakula, uh, you know, legal th- thriller based on a true story, but very well done, but very different from him. Uh, May, December is a, going back to kind of his more transgressive new queer cinema, even though this film is not explicitly a queer film, but there's certainly undertones of that in the movie. Uh, but it's one of his films kind of uh, a little bit uh, provocative and I won't say trashy, but it deals with, you know, kind of trashy subjects. <laughs> yes. And um, it's interesting how uh, you said this. Uh, he's a director that his first like x number of movies were all written by him by himself and was very much he's still very much an auteur but in the last few years uh one of his best reviewed films was carol which is a very old-fashioned but a lesbian film but in a way very old-fashioned um that was the first movie he directed that he didn't write yes and then he did uh dark waters that she didn't write um, and I think that uh, he kind of opened up the idea of making films that he didn't write, because I think for a while he thought that's not something I would never do. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it's interesting how it connects to other movies of his, but how it also feels new. I mean, there's the idea of performance and identity in previous films. I mean, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, his uh, Barbie film uh, filmed with actual Barbie dolls biopic of Karen Carpenter is a film about performance and how the media portrays and thinks about a famous person and uh, he's done multiple films uh, about music Velvet Goldmines kind of about the glam punk era David Bowie but not called David Bowie mm-hmm. um, he did his Bob Dylan film so he, he often has people that are famous and in this case in this film, infamous, 
uh, in how kind of the media portrays them and it's about identity. I think if you've never seen a Todd Haynes film and you're going to watch one before seeing this, you go back and watch Safe, mm-hmm. which is the first film we did with Julianne Moore, um, which is uh, really interesting. The way I describe it is like if uh, a Lifetime uh, Sickness of the Week movie was directed by Michael Haneke. Um, it's in the Criterion Collection, but yeah, May, December, uh, I went into kind of vaguely knowing that it was based on this tabloid story from the nineties. Her name was Mary Kate Letourneau, I think Mm -hmm. is the woman it's based on about a woman who in the real case was a teacher that had sex with her like 12, 13 year old student went to jail, Mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, rape. And then she had two children and they were married for many years. Uh, but the film is, I kind of didn't, I didn't watch the trailer. I didn't know, you know, much more besides that basic inspiration. And the movie is so fun and mm-hmm. deliciously acted. I mean, this is like, uh, certainly Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. This is like top tier, some of the best performances they've ever given. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Natalie Portman is perfect in this movie. Um. And yeah, Charles Meldon has been the sort of big story because obviously people are aware of the talents that Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore is. But Charles Melton has mostly been associated with Riverdale, which I haven't seen, but I know is sort of like a not great sort of CW TV franchise. That's like a high school, not quite wow. like euphoria level, sort of insane high school drama, but um, maybe a little hard PG, hard PG 13. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yes, he stars as the, the husband who was the, the victim um, in the crime uh, that sort of takes place, you know, long before the, uh, the setting of this movie. Um, but the way it sort of talks about him as a victim is very interesting. And it's, it's not really something that's brought up until he sort of brings it up near the end of the movie and what was one of the great scenes, the sort of uh, argument between him and Julianne Moore. Um, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, The the dynamics is that uh, she has this lisp and Mm -hmm. she seems kind of childlike and she's throughout the movie. Oh, go do this, go do that. And she's like, she's very much, uh, you know, it's like people sort of take pity on her like her neighbors and stuff like that i know it's like she talks about how and it's totally warped and wrong and messed up but like she said he came on to me when he was like 13 i was just like she calls herself the princess you know but she's not the queen like i heard an interview with julianne moore it's like she thinks of herself she talks about herself as being the princess and this big strong strapping man comes in and saves her but it's like it's like these weird power. She talks about how she was more naive than he was despite the 20 year age difference. Yeah. Where it's clear. I mean, everyone in talking in the film, you know, it's just film about moral gray areas. I mean, no one's saying that what they did was okay or acceptable. It's rape. It's illegal. It's horrible. But uh, it, it plays with the idea of, you know, how, I mean, the thing that's interesting about the movie is you've heard these tabloid stories, you see them get brought up and, but what the film does is the whole film is set 20 plus years later almost 25 years later and you only get like brief 
images in tabloid magazines and you see a or movie representations of it yes like a lifetime like tv movie version of it before and what's interesting too is this isn't really a spoiler but towards the very end of the movie it's kind of the uh, final scene is like you see a little bit of them filming the movie and you question like how good is this movie going to yeah. be? Like, it what is it worth pretty all this effort? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of close to the TV movie that she's looking at in the movie. But uh, yeah, it's also really interesting with kind of tone. I mean, I know that uh, one of the Coen brothers once said, and I always love this line about directing, they said, the top job of a director is tone management. And the film is quite funny. Like, I don't necessarily agree with this necessarily, but like, it's going to be in the comedy section of the Golden Globes. Um, oh, is that but, like official? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're crazy. the one that put, they put the Martian in comedy. So, yeah. you know, but uh, they also nominated uh, the tourist for a number. It's of like when people talk about the bear as being a comedy. It's like the most yeah. stressful audiovisual experience I've ever had. <laughs> Did you ever see the Saturday Night Live skit with Tom Hanks where they're like best comedy at the Emmys? And it's like a show like Transparent. It's like the <laughs> yeah. really kind of heavy drama that's also kind of funny sometimes. About like suicide like, or something. Yeah, it's like the Big Bang Theory. And then I have Chrome's disease, you know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but no, but uh, the movie it does is funny. Some, yeah, and no, it is funny. It makes some incredible uses of like score to sort of emphasize oh the comedy. <laughs> yes. There's an amazing the, uh, bit that's been referenced on the internet where it's like Julianne Moore looking very serious, looking into the refrigerator and this very serious music is playing. And she goes, I don't think we have enough hot dogs. And then it cuts to the grill and there's like a million hot dogs. <laughs> yes. And uh, just to uh, bring in some uh, background, the score is, uh, been taken from and repurposed and added to this Joseph Losey film called The Go-Between that's from the early 70s, um, which we're big on physical media here. Um, it's a film that Chad Haynes has talked about. It's like virtually like you can't get it. It's, like it's actually streaming. It's actually streaming on like Apple TV, like you can rent it. So like uh, okay. people need to let him know that it's, you know, it's not completely lost. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's a film that stars Julie Christie and I think Alan Bates is in it. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah. I've never seen it, but yeah. um, it's 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 it, the score. I mean, the, the whole movie is one of my favorites of the year, but yes. the score is just like it adds this other level where it's like in a weird way, it's like Alexander Payne getting kind of uh, irritated about the word cozy. There yeah. was all this discussion with Todd Haynes kind of. I don't think he was offended, but he was pushing back on people calling the movie campy. Yes. Because there's like so much that you could say about camp and stop Carter. Stop, stop. I'm the gay one. I have to say what camp is. No. Um, but uh, like there was the whole Met ball a few years ago and people were kind of saying like, nobody really got it. Like, yeah. I mean, part of camp is almost like you can't, make camp like something it's like a cult movie you can't make a cult movie sort of but, unintentional yeah yeah and i do think the movie is funny uh but uh going back to my thing about tone management the movie's funny but it's dark and your alliances it, it, it but 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 it's not uh you know it, but it's, it's not so depressing. enjoyable. Yeah. No, no. It's like the the movie's like delicious. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's in a weird way. It's a word I'd describe, but it's just well, it's, there's something. It's so like low stakes in some ways, but so high stakes in others because it's not like anyone dies or um like there is a crime at the center of it, but the way they treat it almost makes it seem like 
it isn't and everyone sort of behaves like it's very normal and that this is just a normal well, couple and it's about like their kids graduating high school it's sort of like the central conflict <laughs> they're like thing in the movie um, well, it's like what you know it's like the tabloids present you know this crazy story but it's like what happened what would happen 24 years later when they're still married and they have kids and they're like dealing yeah. with college and, and he's you know, like a doctor <laughs> yeah uh, the, some of the funny parts of the movie are kind of savage. Like there's a part where one of the daughters is trying on dresses oh, yeah. and she makes a comment. And there's also another part in the movie where she mentions giving a scale as a present. And it just, that just is like dagger in heart <laughs> twist and turn. It's just, uh, it's got some yeah. in- incredible scenes that like take place in sort of real time where he just lets the camera sit for a- an extended period. That scene with the daughter trying out her graduation dresses, I think goes on for like five or six minutes. And um, the two lead actress performances are so perfect. I mean, um, I talked about uh, the holdovers is one of the best acted movies of the year. This is definitely up there as well. Uh, I don't think I've re- like really said like this is probably my favorite movie of the year. To be honest, it's um, absolutely top ten for me contender right now. And I think that what I want to add to what you're saying about the uh, these extended shots. I mean, Haynes has said this because he's such a cinephile um, that you can't read the script for this film and not think of persona. And he said Mm -hmm. that like one of the things that made him want to do this film was the extended monologue towards the end of the movie where Natalie Portman's acting straight direct address. Yeah. And he said that like, that's Bergman. That's like there's scenes in Bergman films where characters talk directly to camera for extended amount of time. It's there's persona in there. It's kind of fits into the category of uh, like two women in persona uh, and sort of blending of identity yeah three women robert altman's film maholland drive um yeah it makes it's just... a lot of use of mirrors there's a great scene where um they're going over sort of julianne moore's makeup routine and it's basically just like natalie portman and julianne moore looking in a mirror or like being in front of a mirror for five minutes it's just incredible um i love yes. this movie yeah. <laughs> um you also yeah. really get the the sense of the Douglas Sirk um, influence. Like this feels, it feels incredibly contemporary in a in a way that I think is sort of hard to achieve. Um, like it seems incredibly of the moment, even though it's about. I think it's set in 2016, maybe, um, which isn't necessarily like a huge part of it. Um, but it feels very contemporary, but also feels like it literally is like a Douglas Sirk movie at sometimes, which is it's not as like full on is like far from heaven where it's like really yeah. a period piece and going for that aesthetic but it has this it's it's low-key like really beautifully shot it the yeah uh, cinematographer uh is the person who shot kelly reichardt's movies uh and ed lockman is the one who shot almost all of uh, certainly the last many todd haynes films but uh, he had an accident uh, and I think he like, broke his hip and he wasn't able to shoot the movie. And this was a movie that came together really quickly during the pandemic. They, uh-huh. you know, they had the script. Natalie Portman brought Todd Haynes the script. He had wanted to work with Natalie Portman and their uh-huh. schedules, Julianne Moore, him, Natalie Portman, they lined up and they shot it in like 23 days, which is oh my crazy. God. And, they, and crazy. for such a well-acted movie, they had zero rehearsal. That's crazy. And Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore had never acted together. Moore <laughs> and Haynes have like, t- to me, Haynes this... and Moore are like one of the great. It's like 
they John probably Wayne have a shorthand together and stuff like yeah, that. It's yeah, it's like Mastriani and Fellini. It's like they're one of the great a certain working today, one of the great pairings of actor and director that have been together multiple times. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I cannot speak. I, I don't know if it's for everybody because I'm sure some people might be sort of icked out by the whole relationship at the center. Um, but if you're willing to be made uncomfortable and get on this movie's wavelength, this is it's so close to being like absolutely perfect. Um, I was completely riveted by this. I've seen I've seen it twice already. I watched it on back to back days, actually, because I saw it in Thursday in theaters and then it came out on Netflix that Friday. And I was like, why don't we just watch it again? That was so great. Um, incredibly acted, incredibly directed, really an incredible screenplay as well. Sammy Birch. Um, She's like, like 25, I've heard. Yeah, a Tisch School of the Arts graduate. Um, but has not made... This was, yeah, I think her first feature length uh, script. And she also wrote that uh, movie that generated so much controversy last month, Coyote versus Acme, that was like basically dumped by Warner Brothers, even though it was completed, as far as I understand. Um, I've heard really good. Yeah, and apparently very, very good. So maybe she's a real up and coming screenwriter. Um, But it also seemed like uh, maybe Todd Haynes was pretty involved in at least giving notes for the screenplay so although he's not officially credited as a writer i think it does seem like he had some influence over the final script at least i've heard very much the holdovers was one that uh haynes i mean uh Payne initiated the idea of it and told got someone to write the screenplay he had the basic germ of an idea of setting a comedy at a boarding school he Mm -hmm. was in influenced by a French film and he's not credited but he's almost someone that probably could be credited with like story credit story by but yeah but uh but Todd Haynes is such a he's such a auteur he's such a lover of cinema that it's just a movie that it you feel so uh enveloped in it it just you you feel like you're in the hands of a master filmmaker watching oh yeah he's so in control I mean, it's it's one of those ones where it doesn't seem like there are any accidents. I mean, obviously, directors talk about how accidents can be a great thing in the process of sort of finding out what a movie is or you capture uh, what's like, you know, the classic uh, Andre Bazin thing. Or is it? Uh, I can't remember who the sort of like wind blowing in the trees is sort of what makes cinema unique, these sort of unplanned things. Right. Um, but this very much seems like a, a master director in control of, of what we see and what we hear and what we're supposed to feel. Um, I, I was, I was excited watching this movie. I was like, wow, this is great. Cinema is so cool. Sometimes. <laughs> so. I hope that it, I mean, I think it's very likely getting nominated for best screenplay, but I really wish Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore and Charles Melton, like I'd love to see them all nominated. Yeah. I mean, and it's going to be a really competitive best director race this year. Um, yeah, I don't think I think the only one that has a possibility of our three is uh, Alexander Payne. Yeah, I think that's uh, I mean, probably fair. It, I mean, it's lo- I think it's Locke for Scorsese and Nolan. I think it's very likely. Greta Gerwig. Uh, yeah, and Yorgos Lanthimos seems very likely. Um, you know, could it be? Uh, I don't know who's the fifth slot going to be. There's uh, yeah, Alexander I, Payne, Todd Haynes, Bradley Cooper. Yeah zone of interest they sometimes like to do something pretty arty uh, i mean i'd love to see justine triette nominated for anatomy of a fall but 
Um, yeah. It's just there's so many good movies this year. It seems like we're just in like this wave of movie releases post pandemic. Where and there's like 25 <laughs> movies that I still want to see this year. There's like yeah. Ferrari and the Iron Claw and American Fiction and The Boy and the Heron and Maestro, which you've seen already. But yes. uh, there's so many that are still coming out. Yeah. Uh, we're like just so privileged to be. We were we were so deprived of movies for such a long time. Like, and then there's going to be a big gap, uh, like in the middle of next of year because of the strikes. Yeah, yeah we're going to, you know, have I don't know. It's just well, maybe some of these independent movies that got waivers, they'll be have a big bigger release, or they'll have yeah. more of a chance in theaters. Yeah, or maybe maybe even get like picked up by a studio or something like <laughs> that for for distribution. Um, but yeah, this is on Netflix. It's another sort of odd. All the big Netflix movie releases this fall have been so odd. Um, like Fair Play, May, December, The Killer, or like not a, really super accessible movies. Well, I saw that. Uh, well, I mean, but that's because, you know, the big studios just want to make Fast and Furious 7 and Iron Man 7. And I mean, yeah. that's, yeah, I mean, can you imagine like, taking this material the script to one of the big studios like hey let's you know <laughs> yeah. even with the, you know you have two Oscar the talent attached actors. to it yeah yeah i mean it's like i mean if scorsese couldn't get a film with de niro and pacino and pesci made i mean even though we wanted like 200 million dollars to <laughs> yeah. do it but this was a much smaller scale yes uh, yes shot in savannah georgia yeah it just made it look absolutely beautiful um it seemed like all it one thing that didn't get across, it's not like they needed to achieve everything. It's mentioned at the beginning that Natalie Portman is like, it's very hot. I would have liked to see a bit more sweat in this movie. Yeah, but there is some really uh, intelligent uh, use of costumes. Like uh, there's a scene where Natalie Portman's character goes to shadow the husband, the hunky mm -hmm. doctor. And you notice that she's wearing a white uh, blouse, a white top with a black bra and so it's like you can tell that she's kind of trying to flirt with him yes and, oh man uh, her character is, is something else <laughs> well by the end of the movie you almost question whether she's kind of more messed up and weird than Ju julianne moore like even though julianne moore's character probably is it's like julianne moore almost accepts you know she's like, crazy she's oblivious <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah there, and like there's the there's a great moment where she's watching the actress is watching uh um, um, auditions, and he's like, "Yeah, but we need a sexier child actor." That's a great. Yeah, like, oh so my creepy. god! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, highly recommend the movie. It's uh, yes. definitely my favorite of the three, even though I very much like the holdovers. Yes. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All three I thought were good. I think if you had to rank them, the killer would be at the bottom. We, it's yeah, yeah, and then the holdovers, and then I think we both agree May December is the outstanding of these three. Um. Yes. Yeah. So. Everyone with Netflix watch May December. It might make you very uncomfortable, but I think you'll also, if you're open to it, I think you'll enjoy it very much. Um, when we end up doing our top ten of the year, or so I, I would, I would expect this to probably be in my top three. Um, so, very high praise from me. Uh, so that is it for us today. We're gonna have a bit of a. We've done something like this in the past, but a bit of a Jonathan special for our next episode about physical media. So um, we're going from some Netflix releases to basically the opposite of that. Kind of, um, but the, for the holiday season, the idea of like gifts and what I would like to see. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, three very interesting movies by all tour directors. And uh, we will be back with you guys next time.